Welcome to Trailblazing Techs. And today we have Daryl Blackburn, Petroleum Engineer for Noble Energy. Uh, welcome. I'm happy to have you on. Thank you, Brittany. I really appreciate you uh, extending the invite. I'm happy to have this conversation with you. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely grateful to have someone in, your, in my life that is willing to have this conversation. Um, but before we really jump into kind of the heavier topics, kind of the original focus of my podcast was more career uh, focus, but obviously with the recent events, you know, I've, I've had to shift a little bit. So I do want to share your story about who you are as, mm -hmm. you know, Daryl, but also your professional story um, a little bit. And so, as I mentioned, uh, you are a petroleum engineer. And so, you know, in Houston, that's a pretty common um, career path, but outside Houston and, and Texas and maybe kind of the Gulf Coast, it's a unique career path. But what made you want to become a petroleum engineer? How did you pursue that career path? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's actually real simple. I mean, um, I grew up in Houston. Luckily, uh, the nature of ed the education system in Houston at that time was um, directed towards magnet programs, magnet schools. Um, it was a great platform. I, I think that that's still occurring. I don't know if it's got the same um, amount of uh, support behind it as it, did, as it did at the time. But basically, the premise was, you know, if you could, you could test into any school, you didn't have to go to the school that was, that you were zoned to, that was near to your house. Mm -hmm. And so I grew up on the South side of Houston. Um, if you ever flown in the hobby airport, about a mile and a half or so from hobby airport, underprivileged, underserved, um, communities. And you can kind of imagine the schools that were in that direct area were schools that my mom was just not going to let me go to. And luckily I had opportunity, um, to, uh, to, to test in the, um, test into some, uh, some, you know, some better schools in my, you know, early uh, career path, um, academic path, I mean, but long story short, um, uh, my high school was an engineering high school oh, wow. and, um, it, it was on the, it was in the Heights, uh, Independence Heights, um, to be specific. And, uh, I had to take the city bus. I took the city bus from probably third grade to 11th grade when I finally got a car and I did that because it was faster than taking the school bus. Yeah. Um, and so long, like I said, uh, long story short, I went to an engineering high school and luckily there I got a lot of exposure to different disciplines in engineering. Mm -hmm. be like you said, because we were in Houston, um, a lot of the sponsorships, you know, would be a field trip sponsored by Shell. It'd be a trip sponsored by Exxon. I remember we did um, a field trip senior year to um, the Gal. It was a Galveston museum. Oh yeah. Um, and it was just a great time. But I remember the guy who gave the talk had a, had a nice watch on and he said he was a drilling engineer. And yeah. that was about all it took for me. I said, look, that guy's got a nice watch and he's took the time out of his day to, to give some high school kids a tour of this yeah. platform. That's what I'm going to be. And, um, Luckily, uh, um, I had kind of, I know, I'd always known that I was going to be an engineer. I was in an organization. I, I know you're very familiar. You and your family are very familiar, but I, uh, I was in, in a nonprofit organization called Big Brothers Big Sisters. And, um, I had, uh, a big couple. They were both in the oil and gas industry. Mm -hmm. So they kind of ushered me even from a young age, um, to, they ushered me towards that industry. So in the back of my mind, if I knew if baseball didn't work out, yeah. uh, that that was going to be my career path. So that's kind of the long, short story of how I became an engineer. 
No, that that's cool. So I, for one, didn't know there was like engineering high schools because the high school I went to was kind of, it was a private high school, but it was generic. You didn't have kind of those disciplines, if you will, for a lack of better words. I didn't know. Um, I'm glad those things exist though, because it exposes people to things that maybe they wouldn't have otherwise. And it, I, you know, if you have a skill set, right, if you're good at math or science, let's say in this case, right, you know, get exposed to that at an early age rather than kind of getting to college being like, okay, now what kind of thing. So, so you got exposure early. Um, you had, you were a little in big brothers, big sisters, and you were matched with this big, big couple. Um, talk about, you know, why your mom enrolled you in big brothers, big sisters and kind of your experience. And so you're, uh, you were a little, and now Mm -hmm. you're kind of paying it forward and you're a big, which is kind of like the most beautiful circle, uh, that you can possibly take. But why did your mom initially put you into that program? Yeah. Um, growing up in the area that I did on the South side of Houston, you know, there's a lot of different, um, uh, obstacles, uh, adversity, um, and just straight up statistical odds that were against me and all the kids in my neighborhood. Right. Um, I was very fortunate. My mom was older than all the moms that grew up at my neighborhood was almost strictly single moms. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mom was just a little bit older, a little bit wiser, a little bit more mature. And she just knew that anything she could involve me in to get me out of that area, to get me out of my immediate environment, it could only benefit me. Mm-hmm. So she enrolled me in things like Boy Scouts. Um, and I, I, I hated Boy Scouts, but I don't know if you can, if, if, if you're, uh, I don't know, did I lose you? No, you're here. I'm here. Okay. Cause I can't see you anymore, but that's my Boy Scout, like, um, oh, wow. uh, shadow box that, uh, that my mom had made, but, um, she enrolled me in things like Boy Scouts and things like Big Brothers, Big Sisters. And, um, you know, those were, um, uh, just opportunities for exposure. Um, and you know, she knew that I needed a, uh, a better influence, a better, um, set of circumstances, just a, a new perspective. And that's kind of what it came to be. Um, and it's a perfect organization to, to just even, um, intermittently, even for short periods of time to take kids out of their environment and expose them at minimum, expose them to the networks of their bigs, mm-hmm. um, but not just their networks, but just new experiences, new, um, you know, new people, new things. And uh, so I was probably eight years old. Um, and my mom just, you know, like I said, she knew I needed a more consistent male influence in my life. And I was uh, matched with uh, Greg and Barbara, um, who... Uh, you know, who were in the oil and gas industry at the time in, uh, in the Houston area. And so from eight to about 16, 14, 16, something like that, they were just very consistent entities in my life. They just nice. showed up, you know, they didn't, we didn't always have an itinerary, but they were just very present. And then they moved to Alaska. Um, oh. Barbara was with BP and they moved her to the North Slope of Alaska and they live there to this day. And uh, so I visited them multiple times in Alaska. They, I went to the University of Oklahoma and they came down from Alaska when I graduated. Oh, um, wow. I, I see them, you know, maybe once a year now, but we talk all the time. Good. And uh, they're just incredible people that were just consistent in my life. And like you said, I, I, I knew that I had to pay that forward. Um, so when I got to college, even as a freshman, I knew right away that I had to 
to to pay that back. So I was 18 years old when I got matched with my first little. Oh wow. Um his name's Jalen. And um and so he's in school in Norman now. And then I graduate, move to Houston, get married, and now my wife and I are a big couple mm-hmm. to our to my second little, DeAndre. And he's uh nine years old and he lives about two miles from our house. Oh perfect. Yeah. So it's a great situation. We love the organization. And I just couldn't imagine um, just a better use of time to try mm-hmm. to positively impact somebody's life. You know? Yeah. And I think, I think you kind of nailed it. The consistency that people need in their lives, you know, who, whoever it may be, but when you're a kid, that consistent role model or that consistent kind of adult figure in your life is, is important. And they could be multiple, right? It doesn't have to be one or two, but you have that security that's around you, the people that have your best interest in mind, because as a kid, a lot of times, right, you, you think you have your best interests or you know the answers. And then you kind of have this safety net that's like, no, like, this is what we need to do. And so, you know, as you meant, you and I have worked together on Big Brothers for years. And, mm-hmm. and I think it's a great organization. I have my own uh, perspective on it. But as someone who's been a little and also mm-hmm. has been a big twice, or you're on your second little now, right. you know, why Big Brothers, Big Sisters? There's a lot of nonprofits out there, but why Big Brothers, yeah. Big Sisters? You know, what I love about Big Brothers, Big Sisters, is it's um, unlike a lot of organizations where you can you can sell your time, you know, positively. Um, you can, you know, there's a, the other organizations you can impact a lot of kids at one time. Mm-hmm. And I think that when you impact a lot of kids at one time, um, it can be positive but the magnitude is not as positive. The magnitude is not as great. Big Brothers is solely interested in one-to-one mentorship. So you're only interested, you're only invested in one child at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, and specifically for children that grew up in situations like I did, that kid doesn't need to be necessarily in a room full of other kids sharing that one adult. Mm-hmm. Um, because they do that enough in school. They do that enough in PE. They do that enough in Little League, you know, where you're kind of vying for the attention of that one person. Well, in this organization, that kid doesn't have to do that. You yeah. know, it's it's a, that investment is in the attention and the well-being of just one kid. It's all mm-hmm. it's it's hyper focused. Yeah. And so when I'm with DeAndre or when my wife and I are with DeAndre, we can sometimes pick and choose who's going to see him that day. Sometimes it's just me. Sometimes it's both of us. Sometimes it's just her. Either way, we are hyper-focused on him and his needs at that time. Yeah. Um, and he can, we can have those talks um, that he may not be comfortable having with a coach or a teacher. Um, and it's just, uh, it's just a great organization that, you know, harbors positive, safe, you know, one-to-one matches, one-to-one relationships. Yeah. And and part of the reason why I wanted you to talk about Big Brothers, one, it's a very impactful part of your life, but two, right now we're hearing from a lot of people, a call to action, but also people's genuine interest of how do I help? How do I serve? And me personally, this is, there's many different ways to help and there's many different ways to serve. But me personally, I think helping children is the greatest impact that we can have because they're amongst the most vulnerable, but two, they're the next generation, right? So if we help them be better, our next generation, our future will be better. And so I think we're shaping 
as cliche as it is, right? You're shaping young minds, you're shaping the next generation. So if there's a lot of people like you that are putting in this work, we're going to see it pay off, you know, in the near future. And so with that, that's kind of like my miniature plug of if you're looking for a place to volunteer, Big Brothers Big Sisters is scattered across the country, different cities, different ways to get involved, different programs. Um, and it's a great way to kind of, if you're looking for that place to give back and, and how to help your communities. But with that kind of switching gears into some sure. heavier topics, just because as I mentioned, people are looking for places to give back places to volunteer, how to help, and, and why is there this call to action? Well, we have recently seen in a very short amount of time um, a lot of sad deaths at the hands of law enforcement that have mm -hmm. plagued the Black community for a very long time. And now, you know, it seems to come in these waves of it's it's back-to-back, -back, it brings attention, but for some reason it kind of goes away. But now it seems to be sticking. I think people yeah. are getting it that – this is a problem. And that's not to say, you know, everyone is part of the problem, but there is a problem and it's something that needs to be addressed. And I think people are trying to have these conversations to understand like myself, understand more, to learn more. And then people like yourself to share your story. So we can all kind of be in this together. Right. So the most, um, I would, I don't want to use the word popular, but the, the most seen death at this point is George Floyd. Sure. There's, there's others, there's Breonna Taylor, there's Ahmaud Arbery, many others in the past as well, but George Floyd seems to be the tipping point. Yeah. So George Floyd is from Houston. Yeah. So as a Houstonian, what has Houston been like? I, I, I live in Denver now, so I'm kind of just seeing it through the lens of people like you and the media, but what has the city been like since? Well, that's a good question. Um, Houston, um, I'm, Houston has made me proud as it always does um during this time um there has been an immense amount of outpour of uh respect and support patience um and most of the videos and audio and reports that you see that come out of Houston are like beacons of examples of what should be seen everywhere genuine conversation genuine understanding peaceful protests Protests that are met with, um, you know, support and respect, people listening. Yeah. Um, and, you know, unfortunately at these times, like when we talk about protests, you know, they can, that message can get hijacked by special interest groups on mm -hmm. both sides. People politicize other people's pain. Yeah. Um, I think it's the most unfortunate circumstances when people's pain gets politicized. Um, but to, to your specific question, Houston's just been a great place. George Floyd is from Houston. We are from, he and I are from maybe three miles. He grew up maybe three miles from where I grew up. Mm -hmm. um, I'm probably one person tops removed from George Floyd specifically. Yeah. So that kind of thing has, um, that, that knowledge has kind of rocked me because, you know, um, I think to myself, man, we're from the same place. You know, we're from rival high schools. Uh, we went to rival high schools. We're not that different in age. Um, could, could I be next? Could, yeah. you know, one of the worst things about George Floyd's death, in my opinion, is the fact that he and his murderer, the officer, they knew each other. Yeah. And they probably knew each other for 
like 11, 12 years, something crazy, some, some long time. I believe that I, I read that they were uh, bouncers at the same club like and they're yeah, at a bar and their shifts would overlap. So they had to say hi and bye for a decade minimum. And it made me think, you know, does, do I know people that harbor nine minutes worth of hate, hate towards me? You know, do I have relationships with people that harbor that level of hatred towards me? We talk about community policing and community policing has always seemed like such a natural answer. Whereas you have people that only patrol areas that they are uniquely familiar with. Either they live or they work there. And this is kind of that shock to the system where it's like, it doesn't matter if people live or work there, if there are, um, if there's hate that's woven into the system, if there's hate that's woven into the psyche and fear that's woven into the psyche of law enforcement. I mean, mm -hmm. the reality is the the uncomfortable truth is when you, when you get to the heart of these unjust crimes against black people in our country, you know, it's so easy to, uh, to ask, well, well, what were they doing at the time, you know, or did they comply? And time and time again, we see that, man, it's a, a an alleged counterfeit $20 bill. It's selling cigs. It's, you know, selling CDs. It's sleeping in a, in their car last night in Atlanta, this man was sleeping in his car and he was, you know, approached. And it's like, that's not a death sentence. These things are not death sentence. Even the lack of compliance is not a death sentence. We see that, you know, there's times where white people don't comply and they're still met with, um, you know, with understanding and, and patience and, um, uh, and, you know, black people are not met with that same benefit of the doubt. So I know we can get into all those specifics, Yeah. but, uh, you know, Houston is, Houston is, is hurting right now because we've lost one of our own, but man, we're just one of many cities in this country that are losing men and women. Uh, Breonna Taylor, you know, just sitting in their house, an unlawful search and seizure for a person no who doesn't knock. even live in no knock warrants. I mean, these are crimes that we don't really hear about other communities, you know, having their rights infringed upon in, the, in this manner. Mm -hmm. And so, and that's why, you know, without stoking fires and getting too political, that's why when people say Black Lives Matter, it's not a, an indictment on other lives. It's just a, it's a statement that says, look, other communities are not being attacked at this rate. Other communities are not being shot in the street. And of course, we know that all lives matter. But I like to believe, and the reason why I don't wear shirts that say all lives matter yet is because until we can prove in this country that Black lives do indeed matter, when I'm convinced that Black Lives Matter, then I will be an All Lives Matter shirt wearing, sign showing fool, you know, mm -hmm. with that, when, that, when that happens. But I'm just not convinced yet that this country has the same, um, the same level of respect and care and, and admiration and um, um, concern for the lives of Black people. And I will say, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter. Um, I'll even say that I've even shifted my stance on it. Not that I was the all lives matter group, but, you know, for 
you know, it's hard. It's hard as a, yeah. as a white person. It is hard sometimes to just be like, yeah, they're right. A hundred percent because you have to take yourself out of the situation yeah. and be like, this is not me saying my life doesn't matter. This is exactly. me being an advocate saying that Daryl's life matters. All other black people's lives matters. And of course all lives do matter. We're not, we're not saying that. And so it probably took me a solid year of the movement to like really open up my eyes and say, this isn't degrading the fact that my life doesn't matter. Yeah. It's saying that your life does matter. Yeah. And so and I that think- you are not under attack right now. Yeah. You're not in the same vulnerable position right now. So it's time to uh, not necessarily to diminish your own light, but to shine a light on the people that are vulnerable. Yeah. And um, you know, I think to your point, Brittany, I think that what's important in this country right now, what's needed more than anything in this country are people like you who have the humility to change their minds. There are too many people right now under the spell of media, under the spell of um, forced news, whatever, just under the spell of this country who just are incapable and too prideful to change their minds. I have luckily, thankfully, fortunately, I've had messages from so many of my white friends at this time. And so many of them, the underlying theme is, man, I, I'm, I'm thinking completely different now. Yeah. And that's what we need. And, you know, I, I was one of three black graduates for petroleum engineering my year at OU. There were 300 students that graduated. There were three yeah. black kids. Um, and so I made a lot of white friends at OU. I made a yeah. lot of white friends in the state of Oklahoma, many of which, many of whom have called me right now. And you said this earlier that, you know, George Floyd's death, uh, is, is kind of the, the one that's gotten the most traction and it's opened the most eyes, but we have to also realize like, this is not new to black people. You know, um, but whatever it, uh, I'm hearing a little echo, but like whatever, whatever it was that made this death the one, whatever it was that will ensure that this man is not going to die in vain, all these conversations make his life, um, it, it's proof that his life matters because it's, it's, he died for a huge cause. Um, and so many conversations are happening that would not otherwise yeah. have happened. Um, and I'm, I'm, unfortunately, uh, that's the silver lining. Um, and that's his martyrdom and his legacy is that, uh, you know, these conversations are, 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 are happening that would not yeah. have happened. And I think, you know, one thing, I had someone say this to me, this was probably back during mm, 2016, like during the election and how divisive things had gotten. Um, someone had said to me that, when Obama was elected into office, that a lot of white people just kind of assumed that race, like we conquered it, like we all good. And (laughs) yes, we elected a black man into office, which was a humongous feat. It was a humongous, um, historical moment. But I think a lot of us got very complacent and just swept it under the rug and was like, well, we have a black man in the highest power there is. Yeah we're good. And so I think now we're seeing these racial tensions that kind of got swept under the rug that are so deeply rooted, um, come to life 
and it, and it's coming to a head at a time where we've been cooped up in our houses for three months. Yes. People are desperate. Also, don't forget 30 plus million people are out of work. Yes. Um, and it's an election year and it's another divisive uh, election year. And we're, wa- we're watching a lot of things come to head. And, and the way I look at it sometimes is when you have an argument with someone, a lot of times you reach like this climax where it can get very bad. There's a lot of, you say things you don't mean, or you, you say things that are outside of your character and everyone comes to an ahead. And I'm not mm. saying that people are saying things that they don't mean, but when you have an argument, p- things come to a head and then you come to a resolution. So I think right now we are witnessing everything coming to a head, rightfully so. And there's other factors outside of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and all of those. It's these other factors. And I think people are just sick and tired of being sick and tired for a lot of different reasons. And it's put a spark under people, which I think needed to be done. It's yeah. forcing people to have these conversations that are uncomfortable. It is uncomfortable for me to mm-hmm. sit here and, and I'm comfortable with you because I know you very well, but right. it's still uncomfortable um, because you have to do a lot of self-reflection. Every American, no matter who you are, has to do a lot of self-reflection right yeah. now of, yeah. of what, how can you change? What do you need to change? What can you do to be better? How do you better your communities? And we all can do better. Um, And so, you know, it's these conversations that I think are really going to move the needle. Now, protesting is great. I'm like the biggest supporter of protesting. We've been doing it forever, right? Young people really standing up for it. Um, Supporting your neighbors, reaching out to your friends, right? Like those things are all important. Supporting businesses. And so- I think we're kind of still at this climax, right? Where people are Mm -hmm. really at each other's throats and it's going to take, you're not going to boil the ocean or change the world in a day, right? This is going to be a process. And so we kind of, I was talking to someone else where we have to keep the foot on the gas. Yeah. It's important. Because because in the, the cyclical world that we live in, right? things are very relevant and people hyper-focus on them and then something else happens and then something else happens mm. and then something else happens. Yeah. And so if this is that important, which it is, yes. we all need to do our part and everyone has their own part. And so one yeah. thing that I, I addressed with another guest, her episode is, is on uh, the 15th, was I feel like as white people sometimes right now, we're almost mm. tearing each other down of mm. who's not who doesn't know the most or who's not the most woke and that doesn't do any good. Right. And I was talking about on one of my other episodes that I got called out for not sharing a black box or posting the blackout Tuesday black box. I didn't do it. Not because I don't care. It just didn't seem something I would do. Right. I decided to, I, I decided, you know, I'm going to do things differently. I'm going to, I'm going to help in different ways or I'm going to be active in different ways. But having another white person tell me that I'm part of the problem and that I am racist, to me, I kind of- didn't post a black picture. And I kind of, you know, I was like, how does this help the dialogue? And that's another thing too, is like, if we're going to just tear each other down, we're never going to get anywhere, anywhere. Completely agree. I mean, the reality, when it came to uh, social media movement, so much of it is performative protesting. You know, so much is- make sure I got the right picture, make sure I'm in the best outfit. And you see a lot of companies that fall victim to it where some companies don't practice diversity and inclusion, right. but 
they've been peer pressured and well, I got to make some kind of statement because my competitor just made one. Right. No one should make statements. Just because. Just because. And to your earlier point, you know, about, uh, you know, about this being so uncomfortable for a lot of people, specifically white people right now. um, You know, like I said earlier, this is not new to black people, right? Right. This is, in my opinion, this is not George Floyd's death was not even the most egregious filmed black death via the hands of cop. Like there were way more uh, uh, Walter Scott was shot eight times in the back as he was running away and a gun was planted at his waist over his corpse. You know, uh, Eric Garner was choked out in front of, you know, there's been way more of these that could have sparked these conversations at that time. We could have been three years, yeah. 10 years into these conversations. But no matter what it was that lit that fire, it's going to, the only way that progress can ever be made besides having these conversations is when privileged people or people in power do uncomfortable things yeah. and, and make uncomfortable moves. The reality is, you know, we'll hear the term now coming up, a privilege or white privilege. And that means a lot of different things to a lot of a people. A lot of different people. Yeah. And, and, and I think it, the term white privilege or privilege in general gets misconstrued in terms as it gets related to classism. And sometimes privilege, you know, there's white people who believe that, well, I don't have that much privilege. I was raised poor. Um, and re- privilege is only reserved to, to the rich, to, to rich people. And the reality is, Privilege, my what if, if if anyone who listens to this doesn't take anything else away from um, what I'm saying or what you're saying, take this away. That privilege is the unmerited receipt of the benefit of the doubt. Full stop. Mm-hmm. It's the unmerited receipt of the benefit of the doubt. When you are given the benefit of the doubt in any circumstance in your life, that you didn't earn by knowing that person who rendered that to you. Yeah. You are on the receiving end of privilege. Yep. And in this country, unfortunately, privilege is not evenly displayed uh, or evenly dispersed. Um, I had a friend uh, who was, you know, a college friend of mine. We had great conversation. We actually drove around. He said, you know, I want to get a change of scenery. I want to see where you grew up. Um, I want to see, I, I need to change a perspective. And I said, man, hop in. So we went on a drive and I said, you want to see where I grew up? I'll show you where George Floyd grew up too. Cause they're three miles away. We don't even got to get on the freeway. We're going to go eat at black restaurants. We're going to go, we're going to have genuine conversation. And one of the things he told me was about his upbringing. He's a white male and he was raised poor. And he always thought, you know, no, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. Why can't other people do the same? And that was his mentality. But when he got to uh, university, he joined a fraternity. And he realized very quickly in this fraternity, a predominantly white university fraternity, not predominantly, an entirely white university fraternity, he realized, man, I'm nothing like these people. These guys are all rich. Their dads have boats. Their dads own companies. Mm -hmm. I'm nothing like them. I was raised poor. But the reality was... And in his retrospect, uh, in his hindsight, he realized 
he was exactly like them at that point because he was white. And there was no difference between, no one treated him any different in that circle. And he also realized he got his first job from a Pledge Brothers uncle, from a Pledge Brothers dad or some hand that was lent to him Mm -hmm. from the network that was, that he was exposed to specifically for, because of his whiteness. And it kind of shook his world when he's looking in hindsight, man, this whole time I thought I had pulled myself up by my bootstraps. Now his grades were really good, yeah. but his fraternity had all the old tests and we used to study together. And he, I, 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 it was junior year of high school when I realized, wait, what are y'all looking at? Y'all looking at the old tests? Yeah. The one that we're studying for tomorrow and his network, his fraternity had files and files and files of old tests passed down from generations. That's privilege. I didn't know anything about this. I didn't know that existed. I didn't know that was a thing. I didn't know that this was legal, that it was not frowned upon. If you had the access, you had the access. I didn't know anything about that until I was, a, I would have graduated in two and a half years if I knew I had all the old tests. Yeah. But these are things that, these are, these are points in people's lives that when they see the misjustice, the injustice that, white, that Black people are experiencing, at minimum, they're looking back at their lives like, man, I, I'm thinking, I thought about this all wrong. This man, you know, you look at uh, a lot of the conversations around police brutality in, in, in terms of the opposing views um, usually the main opposition is, well, you, you know, you should have complied. You should have, you shouldn't have been doing what you were doing. And I think that that's what really woke a lot of people up with George Floyd is that man, that, that man was restrained. Yeah. He was unarmed. He was handcuffed and he was restrained. What threat could he have possibly been to anyone? This man had nine whole minutes to change his mind, nine whole minutes to relieve the pressure. Yeah. He didn't. He chose not to. And the, the, then you, you have people who don't understand the impact of protest. He wasn't arrested till two weeks later. Yeah. You know, and it's, of course, the people ask the protest work, violent or unviolent, I will never advocate for violence. But man, it woke a lot of people up and they sure got what they wanted. They, they got an arrest that wasn't going to happen without it. And they got an increase of the charges because they wasn't they weren't going to get it without raising their voices. And the last thing I'll say about this is, you know, in regards to George Floyd's death, the reason why it was so bad for me was, unfortunately, in regards to police brutality, if that same video had been taken, and there were four black guys kneeling on the necks of another black guy, or if there are four white guys kneeling on the necks of another white guy or any combination of that. Yeah. They all all get arrested immediately and it's all murder immediately. If he's restrained and subdued and that's just, they're all just complicit in his death. Why are the police, why are police officers held at a different standard in this country? Yeah. Because they had a different uniform on that same action. It's murder. Is how is it not murder for them immediately? And why do we have to protest we weren't, no one was protesting the action. It happened. Nothing you can do. They're protesting the fact that there was no justice immediately and in no other circumstance. If I'll put it this way, even if those cops had been kneeling on a border collie, oh, there would have been consequences. 
yeah. immediate repercussions. If that yeah. was a golden doodle or yeah. if it was a, a sorority girl, th- that, that would have immediate consequences. But it's a black man in America and that's why it takes violence and protest to just wake people up. And, and I, will, I will say for me, I've said this multiple times, but I didn't watch the video in full because I just can't watch someone die. Um, sure. But it's loud and clear, right? That it was nine minutes of a slow death, basically. And, and you know, for me, there's been, you know, there's definitely been events where I'm like, holy cow, like that's horrible, that's wrong. And, you know, it is what it is. But this one, watching what I did, I didn't watch it in, in entirety, how smug the cop was, yeah. how unthreatened the cop felt. Yeah. You know? Very confident in what he was doing. It, and it's... It's like gut wrenching to watch, and and yeah. and not to kind of deter us from the conversation, but the the cops that I I have talked to, mm-hmm. even say they're like, his hands are in his pockets, like right. get up, get yeah. up, you know, and 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 it's as simple as that, right? Like you're not even asking for a whole lot, you're asking for someone to get off of someone's neck, yeah, right? Like he just wanted to breathe, yeah, and 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 I think for me that was like my big wake up call was the fact that he was subdued, right? He was handcuffed. He was on his stomach. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know about you, but have you ever tried to do anything without your arms? Can't really do much, Mm-mm. you know? And so why did you feel that you had to sit on him for nine minutes? And yeah. so there's another, and, and like you said, they've known each other for a really long time. So you wonder, not that I, not that it justifies anything, but you kind of wonder like, what was their relationship like? Like, why did <laughs> this man want to do this? Yes. And you know, to your point when you were like, do I know anyone that hates me that much to mm-hmm. sit on me for nine minutes and kill me? I often wonder, do I know anyone who is capable of that type of hate? I'd like to say no, no. but I don't know because people surprise you and there's yeah. things about people that you don't know. And the reality is that, that, that the, the hatred doesn't have to necessarily manifest itself violently. The, the, yeah. the, the problem with this country is the lack of parity, the lack of equity um, across professional boards? Speaking to your um, your listeners, who who are who, you know, you have conversations about the professional world and 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 the business world. The problem is there's no equity, there's no parity. If you if you gather every CEO of every major Fortune 500 company or every one in between, it's going to look Pretty similar. Uh, pretty yeah. similar. It's going to look like a white, it's going to look like a fraternity. Yeah. And unfortunately, although I might not know people that would kneel on my neck for nine minutes, I know people who wouldn't promote me. I know yeah. people who wouldn't advocate for me. Um, I know people who wouldn't call a friend and, and champion me. And that's no, not that it, obviously it's a difference in, in murder yeah. Um, versus versus uh, you know subliminally um, subduing somebody, but I'll tell you what's way more prevalent in this country is people that intentionally or unintentionally subdue the progress yeah. of of underprivileged people um, because it's just so e- so much easier to do. I mean, we talk about uh, like I said earlier about privilege and about you know, move the only way to move the needle is white people who are in power who do uncomfortable things. You know, privilege is a construct, it's a bubble 
that in order to examine it, the reason why so many of our contemporaries are examining their privilege now at 25, at 30, at 40, at 50, the reason why they're examining it now is because it's inconvenient to remove yourself from the construct of a privileged bubble yeah. and examine it. It's, yeah. it's not convenient. It doesn't behoove anyone. It doesn't behoove you to leave the construct of privilege to reevaluate it because what it does is it diminishes all of the accolades and um, all of the, the, uh, well, like you said, your friend thought he picked himself up by his bootstraps yeah. and, and you've been told that your whole life yeah. and people are told their entire life, you've made it this far on your own marriage. And that dude over there is lazy. And you tell yourself and that gets in and that sets in that pride gets in there. And then when you realize, dang, like I had a lot of help and I had more help that I didn't deserve. I had the benefit of the doubt, you know, that, that other people don't have. And unfortunately in all aspects of American society, whether it's academia whether it's white collar professionalism, blue collar professionalism, whatever it is, it's ten, it tends to be run by people in power who know that it's more convenient to maintain their power by only championing and promoting people that look like them. So there's a lot of people, and I know your audience are probably thinking, like you brought up earlier, what can I do? What can I do? I'm, I'm listening, uh, you know, because obviously, you know, your listeners probably have a similar mindset as you, where they have the same interests, um, you know, maybe the same thinking. And, that, and that, that's, that's why podcasts are such a beautiful thing, because you can listen to who you want to listen to. Yeah. And maybe those people are asking themselves, you know, all right, this guy talked about big brothers, talked about privilege. Like, what are some actionable things that we can do. And I, I, I think that there's three actionable things that, uh, that white people in this country can do. And I, I don't want to just keep pointing the finger at white people, but unfortunately that's the white people tend to be the ones who can, um, who can enact change by doing the uncomfortable thing. Um, one of those things is actively shift your own perception of minorities. Try to shift your perception of black people. Do so by reading black novels, reading, watching documentaries that are made by black people. You know, when I read a book or when we watch a movie that comes out of Hollywood, nobody says, well, we're going to go support white film today. Yeah. You know, just like, yeah, yeah. I'm just going to go watch Liam Hemsworth today. Yeah. You know, and it's like, no one thinks about the construct of Hollywood and who that supports. Yeah. Unfortunately, we're going to have to actively think, you know what, let me shift my own perception by watching something by Ava DuVernay. Let me watch something by Issa Rae, or uh, let me make sure that I uh, fill my mind with black authors like Colson Whitehead, who's on his second back to back Pulitzer prize. Um, it, it, fill your minds up with positive art and and um, and expressions of black voices, you know. Yeah. And and unfortunately, you have to do that mindfully. It's uncomfortable, so you you we rarely go to the you can't go to the box office and just say I'm going to watch this 
Will Smith movie. Yeah, it's got Will Smith in it, but it ain't by Will Smith. Right. And, uh, you know, go do a little bit of research to shift your perception outside of what's comfortable um, to you. Um, Another thing, people that are in power in this country, whether it's white men, white women, men, whatever it is, if you're in power, do what's uncomfortable to reallocate equity. I think so often, especially in the professional world, especially in oil and gas, an industry, an industry that I love. If I could do oil and gas my whole life and go out to the field and meet the guys and put on my steel toes and my hard hat with people who, let me tell you, don't look like me and don't come from where I'm from. I still have loved the time and the connection that I've made with people from all over blue collar America. Right. Um, but I'm not in a position of power. Right. And it takes people in a position of power. We talk about the good old boy network of oil and gas. It takes people, for instance, like your father, who I love dearly, your father has been in positions of power and he has made calls on my behalf. He has advocated to people in the industry on my behalf. He is champion. He is a white male that has gone outside of his comfort zone and done things that he didn't have to do. It doesn't behoove him to champion me, but he has championed me to his colleagues. Yeah. And that is an active way to reallocate the equity in professionalism. Because mm-hmm. I can't do it myself. Yes, my work can speak for itself, and I hope that it does, but I'm not in a position of power. I can't pull myself up. I can't, yeah. I can't pull myself up the corporate ladder. I need people to be championed. If you've ever been promoted, that means someone somewhere championed you. Yeah. The last thing is believe in accountability. Um, I would also like to say believe in legislation. I think that legislation has to be kind of like the last thing, even though you can legislate accountability, especially in regards to police brutality. Like you can leg- legislate, for instance, Breonna Taylor's law. Now you in, in, in Kentucky, you can't no knocks. No knocks. That's, a, that's legislating accountability and you can do that. Obviously it's a lot more constructs in our society that could have prevented her death. Yeah. But now no one should ever die because of a no knock search and seizure, you know, Warren, uh, yeah. violation. So believe in accountability, believe in um um the fact that we can potentially potentially um alter our society through accountability. The fact that you know, you have a guy kneeling on somebody's neck, but there's four other dudes who had the same nine minutes to make a difference, yep. the same nine minutes to put a stop to all of it, and they chose not to. And, and so that point, actually, because two of the cops were like on their fourth day or something, like they were rookies, and that's not making an excuse, but why, why was that culture okay? Why did they feel? Yeah. Well, I just don't know. Like if I, if I ever was in a situation like that, like I understand why civilians don't jump in because you have no idea what is going to happen. But as the cops, 
Why? What, what type of culture, what power did that man have over those guys? I know he was their training officer, Mm -hmm. but like what still, why, why did those other three feel so uncomfortable to say something? Because you know, you're standing there and you're like, why are you sitting on this guy's neck? And you have people screaming at you to get off his neck. So that's another question like about um, accountability and kind of, Mm -hmm. I guess the culture of your agency. Yeah. And your, yeah. Police department and stuff like that. Where when we think of police officers, historically, we kind of think of it same as oil and gas, right? The good old boy network. We take care of each other, no matter, Mm -hmm. kind of at all costs. Mm -hmm. What do we do to shift that? How do we shift that? And, and, and again, I think it goes back to accountability. And and so, like you said, there was three other officers that had the same nine minutes to do anything, whether you rip them off, I don't know, but it's pretty easy to get someone off someone's neck. Yeah, it's, we we unfortunately in this country have so many constructs where it is built on this underlying authority um, that's not written. It's right. it's 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 almost hazed into people um, to obey their commanding officer at all costs. You know, on your fourth day at any job, you're always going to yield to the guy who knows more than you do. Right. If you're a rig hand or a coil tubing hand a driller, whatever, if it's your fourth day, you usually just got to kind of sit there and shut your mouth. Unfortunately, in law enforcement, a fourth day rig hand didn't probably go through basic training. A fourth day rig hand probably didn't. He's going to learn on the job. Yeah. It's your fourth day. That gentleman who was, you know, complicit, it was his fourth day, but I doubt a fourth day on the payroll. He went through an academy and we got to start there. But unfortunately, the construct of of authority and kind of like subduing your own internal morality to yield to authority is a is a construct that we need to do away with. I would direct people to my favorite author, uh, one of my favorite authors, um, Malcolm Gladwell. I love this guy, statistical behavioral analysis. I love stuff like that. But in his book, um, Outliers. He talks briefly about Korean airlines, I think. I don't want to get that wrong, but I'm, I think it was Korean airlines. And but in the 80s, they had uh, more uh, crashes, plane crashes, than any other airline carrier in the world. Mm-hmm. He did all this. Da- they went through all this data and they had all these black box um, recordings, all this analysis. And what the, what the reasoning was was if you showed up on the job, and if you were at Korean Air, and I think that this works in all of uh, aviation, I could be wrong, but whoever has the most hours is the first captain, right? Mm-hmm. So if you and I, Brittany, show up and you're a pilot and I'm a pilot and you have a thousand hours and I have 800, you're the captain, I'm the first officer. Mm-hmm. Or yeah, the the second officer, whatever that is. Well. Unfortunately, there were times where you had a guy who was younger, who had more flight hours, who was the first captain, but had to sit next to someone who was older. And in Korean culture, you defer to your elder at all costs. Yeah. And even if you had more flight hours, they still would defer to their elder out of deference and respect, cultural respect. And these planes were... (laughs) crashing to the ground 
And you had more experienced pilots who would rather that flight hit a mountain than that they speak up like, why are you doing this? Push these buttons and we'll be okay. No, they would rather it go to the ground than ever disrespect. So they had the, the TSA and all these agencies, flight agencies had to go into Korean air and literally change their culture, break them from that culture. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it sounds bad. You don't ever want anyone to assimilate to some other culture that you might think was better, but there's lives on the line. If yeah. you're flying Korean air, they had to go in and psychologically re-educate the, some of these great pilots so that these planes wouldn't crash. And now they're one of the safest flights, sa- safest airlines yeah. in the world. And that, that same um, mentality, that same construct, that same methodology has to be translated into law enforcement in this country where, hey, it might be your fourth day on the job, but morality, it's not your fourth day analyzing right and wrong. Yeah. It's not your fourth day on the job determining moral constructs. Like, bro, he's killing that dude. Speak up. And it's that simple. And, um, I think that one of the things, and it goes back to accountability and potentially legislating accountability, legislating higher standards in how uh, these police officers or these academies are training their officers. We, ha- we need more accountability. That needs to be an open public standard of how these people are trained so that at any point we can say, nah, you just violated uh, public policy 1A5B by not speaking the heck up when you saw this. And yeah. therefore you're, you're just as liable. Yep. So um, I hate to belabor with that, that anecdote, but um, I think that it is such a similar, um, uh, similar, you know, um, analysis, should, similar yeah, idea. People shouldn't be afraid to speak up for what's right. And I think in general, no matter what we're talking about, you, like you said, if you're the four, if you're on the fourth day or your boss is there or something, you like, we've all been in those situations where you're like, mm. I'm just going to sit back here and I'm going to keep quiet because it's my boss or what have you. Um, But there's a fine line between like your boss, like doing a presentation incorrectly and killing someone. Right. And so we need to have the courage to speak up. And also this, I guess, culture where a lot of times there can be punishments for speaking up, you know, Mm -hmm. that needs to, that needs to stop. Like we need to take into account what people are saying. Um, It should not be a punishment for you speaking up for what you think is right. Right. And, and so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm lucky. I work for a company that I think embraces that workday where, you know, you can speak up at any time. There's open communication between all levels of everyone from an individual contributor like me all the way up to our CEO, Neil. And so it's, it's amazing what it feels like to work for an organization like that and see it and then hear other people's stories. And you're kind of like, like, why, why do you guys operate like that? We're able to operate like this. And, you know, we're not perfect. No company is perfect, but you know, I think Workday does a really, really, really good job. They, they do it mindfully to be diverse and provide opportunities for all walks of life. Like we have a chief, we have a chief diversity officer. Her name is Karen Taylor. She's a black woman Mm -hmm. or C-A-R-I-N Karen, if you ever want to look her up. And over the last two weeks, the the, I don't even know the right word, the responsibility that she has put on herself mm-hmm. 
to better all of us has been incredible to watch and be part of because, you know, we, we, you know, I'm in sales, right? So when we have town halls and all hand call meetings, they're normally, here are your numbers. This is what we miss this is what we need to work on here. Are quotas for next year, next quarter or next year or whatever. And we've actually scrapped all of those and we've created open forums for all of us to talk because Workday has created this safe space in general before all of this, where we as employees could talk, have hard discussions. Um, and with people that don't look like me or people that don't look like that person. And so we're able to get different perspectives in a very respectful and positive way. And so I've really enjoyed, cause I've been at Workday for like a year and a half. I've really just enjoyed the culture of, you know, trying to champion everyone, having mm. the accountability, but also having the transparency, whether it's someone like me or, you know, a senior VP, whatever it may be. Because if you don't have those lines of communication, mm. in my opinion, that's when things really start to go wrong. Because if something goes wrong on my level and I don't feel comfortable enough to say something or carry it all the way up, you know, that's when injustices happen. Whether we talk about, someone not promoting you and not championing you just because of this color of your skin or sexual harassment or yeah. something like that. Like there's a lot of other things that fall into kind of the conversation that we are talking about as well. We just happen to be talking about race because of the current events. Right. So a lot of things that we need to change, I think as a culture, whether it's corporate or just in general as Americans about, like you said, kind of deconstructing that authoritative kind of figure where, yes, they are your boss, but they're mm -hmm. not your moral compass. Right. Like we're all adults. Like we know what is right and what is wrong. And so mm -hmm. I don't know where we kind of got diverted where it was like, uh, but, you know, my boss or my superior or whatever. Yeah. Like, sorry, couldn't, my hands are tied. And me personally, I would rather ruffle feathers mm -hmm. and stick up for what I think is right. Um, and possibly face consequences, whether they're warranted or not, mm. then like watch someone sit on someone's neck for nine minutes or watch, yeah. you know, uh, 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 someone, this has never happened, but like someone in my organization, like sexually harass someone over and over again, right, you know? right. Like, like these things need to just be kind of fixed in our brains. And I think we've been just very complacent for a really long time. And again, mm -hmm. everything is coming to a head mm -hmm. and you know, I don't have the answers. I know there's things that I can do and you've kind of given great examples um, as well. But at the end of the day, it really just comes down to supporting each other. And right, and right now it's the Black Lives Matter movement, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's supporting our black brothers and sisters. And, you know, another great example is Workday is giving us the 19th off Juneteenth. Love it. To be in one, solidarity, yeah. to learn about it. I was actually amazed at how many people didn't know uh, what it was. Yeah. And that's not me like tooting my, like, you know, be like, oh, I'm so sure. smart. I just honestly had, like, there were so many, we have like a, a Slack channel, a diversity Slack channel. And so many mm -hmm. people were like, I'm embarrassed to not know what this is. Yeah. It's like, that's okay. That's why Workday has decided to make this a very public thing. One, it's a holiday. Yeah. But two, learn about it. Yeah. Take an opportunity to to talk to people. Take an opportunity to support maybe a black business or something. Love you know, it. just learn because we don't. We all. That's another thing in this world with social media and the media. We're all expected to know everything about everything. Yeah. 
And quite frankly, like depending on where you're from and your education and your exposure, your Mm -hmm. view on life or what you know is going to be very different. So like going back to your friend in college, like I, I really kind of relate to that in a sense where you might think one thing because you've been right. told that your whole life and that's been your perspective and that's not anyone saying you're wrong right. but it's saying like there's a whole lot of people who didn't get to live that yeah and i think you have to recognize that and it is a humbling experience it can be a frustrating experience and it also can shake you to your core because like your friend you know his whole life was like oh man you know i pull myself up by my bootstraps like yeah. all american dream and that's not to say like he didn't work hard yes but there were other circumstances, like you said, you were like, I had no idea about these tests, man. If I had tests in college, I would have done, <laughs> yeah. I would have done fine. Um, and I think it's inherent on people right now to, like we discussed earlier, be humble enough to unlearn some of the falsehoods that you've been taught and, and listen mm-hmm. and be open to maybe changing your mind to relearn some things. Yeah. Uh, yeah Juneteenth is a great example. I give people a lot of benefit of the doubt because luckily, uh, you know, if you lived in a great state of Texas, you know, Juneteenth means a little bit more to you or should mean something a little bit different to you um, than other states because Juneteenth is specifically uh, about the news of the freed slaves getting to Galveston, specifically Texas, Galveston. And so I I understand, like I said, I give people a lot of grace, uh, but there's so many things that 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 we're not taught and it's okay to not it's okay to not know those things but instead of learning them and leaving them where they lie ask yourself why you didn't why didn't I know this did I not do enough research or can I look back at my teachers and say why didn't y'all teach me this yeah you know I have I went to school in Oklahoma even though I'm from Houston Oklahoma was home to the to the most vicious race riots. Well, the Tulsa riots, I would, I couldn't believe people didn't know about that either. And again, that's but, not me just saying like, oh, I know so much, but yeah. there are definitely discrepancies in, oh. in what people are taught. And like, likewise, I went to college in Ohio and co- yeah. Ohio is right on, um, you know, the North South line. Yeah. And so there was things about Ohio and West Virginia that I did not know. Yeah. And so you just, I knew people that were from Oklahoma. My roommates were from Oklahoma and didn't know about the riots from Tulsa of yeah. all places and didn't know about what had happened there and how it changed. There is a, a river that runs right through Tulsa and it's, it's, a, it's a North and a South. And to this day, till this day, the black people live on the North side and the white people live on the South side of Tulsa. And it, there's a reason that they had, that they did that. And the reason, and, and no one knows it, no one's taught it. Yeah. And so there's a reason. Um, so I, I just, I just uh, encourage people to ask questions, not to be discouraged when you um, don't know, don't know something, yeah. uh, you know, and, and to try to, to ask why you didn't know it. And then maybe try to improve, you know, if, if you know that you learned something that you know your child should know, if, if it may be bigger than just to teach them that thing, but to go to your school and say, hey, put the Tulsa race riots in this, in this, in your curriculum. The, the, um, the timeline of racial injustice in this country, unfortunately, is a lot more expansive than Rosa sat on a bus, Martin led a march, Malcolm yeah. wanted to fight, and Abraham freed the slaves, and LBJ signed a bill, and here we are. Like, 
there is are a, a ton of things that that are uh deeply woven into the racial um chaos in this country. look at things like the tuskegee experiment you know there's a there's a um there is a stigma in the black community that black people don't like to go to the doctor it's a real thing black people do not go to the doctor at the same rate could be because black people tend to work at jobs where their health insurance is not provided by their employer. That could be one. But just deeply rooted in a lot of black people is the fear of going to the doctor. Well, there were 40 years in Tuskegee, Alabama, where in, uh, I think it occurred in North Carolina as well, in, in, in that region of the country, for 40 years where, where the government of the United States was injecting black people specifically with syphilis to eugenically prevent them from procreating, to sterilize them. Yeah. And they thought that they were getting treatment yep. for, quote, bad blood. That's what they thought. They thought they were getting treatment. And so that knowledge, when it all came up, can you imagine the, 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 the feeling of betrayal when you realize, wait, you weren't injecting me with, with an antibody or a, a vaccine. You were injecting me with a sterilizing disease to prevent my my line from propagating. It's sick. And yeah. so, but that fear and that lack of trust creates that stigma that goes to this day. Yeah. And so there's just little things like that that's like woven into the fabric of racial injustice in this country that that people don't know it's okay that you don't know but when you learn about it look it up for yourself ask maybe well how why the hell did, I, did, did i not know about this and and the, the answer usually is you don't know about it because it doesn't behoove you to be aware of your privilege it doesn't strengthen your um your person it doesn't strengthen your legacy to be made aware of how your privilege assisted you. It doesn't doesn't make people better to know that they didn't make it on their yeah. own merit. You know, I will say though, you when you say it doesn't make people, it doesn't behoove them or it doesn't make them better or whatever, I would kind of argue the other side, maybe now, where if you know this, you understand why there is just complete outrage, right? Mm. It's just been something, it's been a pattern since the beginning of this country being mm -hmm. founded and you know going back to asking yourself why you don't know something i think it kind of ties also back to voting right like who are you putting in charge of your education and your curriculum right yeah. like in in denver or in colorado we just had our ballots mailed in about uh like our primaries and one of them was like a board of education and stuff like mm -hmm. that which i love that Denver sends people in the mail not before the ballots, to correct me if I'm wrong, they send you things to educate yourself on what will be on the ballot. Yeah, we get a lot. Of, and granted, I've only been here since September of last year, but I did live here 2013 to 2015. And yeah, you definitely get a lot uh, in the mail. It's, it's pretty accessible too to like sign up for notifications, emails. So like you yeah, can constantly be in the loop. And 
I do like at times, not to kind of derail us, but at times I do have some skepticism over mail-in ballots. Just my only skepticism is like, I never know if it's actually gotten there. That's like my big question, but. You don't know that you're, when you do it electronically, you don't know that your vote actually got there when you spin the dial and hit enter. I mean. It's true. No, no. It's hard to argue that, you know. Right, right. I'm with you there. But outside of that though, I like it. Like I get my ballot, I can fill out my little bubble and I can either mail it back or we actually have drop off stations. So you don't have to get, you know, postage and stuff like that. So it is, I think Colorado and Denver do that very, very well, which is, which is nice. But circling back, you know, I looked at the board of education and I kind of got back to like, well, I've, there's some things I don't know. Why don't I know them? And so going back to accountability and putting people in power and stuff like mm-hmm. vote people in, vote yeah. them out. Yeah. And, and so I know it's really easy to just sit here and say that, yeah. you know, it, we do, that's just the fact of the matter. That's how this country is run. We have people these decisions, but, yeah. but they have to be appointed or they have to be voted in. And so we, mm-hmm. as the public owe it to ourselves to put the right people there and take the wrong people out. Yeah. And when we were having, um, we're having those forums and this one, he's a solution consultant, uh, a black man. And someone asked, they were like, you know, when I hear someone say something that's inappropriate or racially charged or a slur just mm-hmm. in my presence, like what, like, what do I do? Right. And there's a, and there's a million different answers because there's totally different circumstances. But the one thing that really stuck with me was he said, ask yourself why that person feels comfortable saying that around you. Yeah. Yeah. And that's true. And, you know, I find myself in like, so now we're kind of getting into like all different topics, but you know, there's, there's horrendously racist people that do stuff like lynch people, murder black people. But you know, as a, as a white person, I often find myself sitting here being like, where are these people? Not that I'm saying they don't exist, but I personally don't know those people, but you brought it up earlier that there's a bigger population, a bigger issue where you kind of subliminally or passively, there's these things that are ingrained in us as well. And everyone has their biases. And there's these little moments where it might not be like outright racism where someone says something about you. Yeah. But maybe they don't promote you. Yeah. Maybe they don't help you. Maybe yeah. they don't work on your car or whatever. And so so when we hear about like racism, I think a lot of times people think, oh, it's someone saying the N-word or yeah. lynching or yeah. murdering. And yeah, that obviously is, but those are the extreme examples. But we have a lot more passive examples that takes a lot of self-reflection. And like you yes. said, take a step back. Why do you think these things? And you can't control your thoughts. You can mm-hmm. certainly control your actions and things you say. Mm-hmm. But when you have some of these thoughts, maybe take a step back and be like, why do I think this? Yes. Why? Yes. And maybe it's justified, maybe it's not. But I think mm-hmm. we all owe it to ourselves, whether we're talking about race or anything else. Why do you view something this way? Because like, chances are you and I might view things very similarly, let's say on oil and gas, because mm-hmm. we pay our bills. But you and I might see things very differently from different social standpoints because we were we were from different we're from Houston, but we're from very different parts of Houston. Sure. And so we have different perspectives. And that doesn't mean anyone is more right or more wrong. But if you Mm -hmm. have these conversations, you might understand, oh, 
I get it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah. It might take a while. It might take years before it clicks. Kind of like me with Black Lives Matter. It wasn't that I was against it. Yeah. But I, I guess I didn't completely get it. Yeah. And then finally something clicked. I can't tell you the day it was, but yeah. it was like hell, like, hell yeah, Black Lives Matter. Like, yeah. Duh. Like, yeah, and it takes that. You, you look at, you know, Drew Brees had a, had a rough couple weeks. Yeah. But, but no matter what happened, he said something. Unfortunately, what he said was not even very on topic of what's going on in the country. Yeah, it's it like, was kind of off. I agree. It was kind of a gotcha question. I kind of feel bad for him in that regard because it's like, man, we, that guy asked you a question. We're not even talking about that right now. Yeah. But unfortunately. He also should know better as well. He should know opinion. better. He should have said. His, his answer, no matter what he felt, his answer should have been, man, I'm not going to get into that right now. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about unjust, you know, crimes, unjust uh, uh, policing and things like brutality. He should have just diverted because no matter how you feel, that's not even what we were talking about right now. However, what he, he said what he said and he opened the door. And uh, but, but fortunately, he's walked things back because he had of humility um to listen to people you know there's a lot i know a lot of my friends felt very strongly about colin kaepernick kneeling could have had liberal views about this and very progressive views about that but boy was that disrespectful to kneel the flag oh that's just so disrespectful and you know what's so interesting about that is if i tell you that my protest is not disrespectful. You don't have the authority to make it disrespectful. And if I, think, I tell you, and I, no. and you know what? I had that I had that realization because I originally was not that I was against Kaepernick kneeling, but I kind of like I wasn't gung ho for it at all. Sure, sure. it's but uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. exactly, and that's what I realized. I was like, I think I'm more uncomfortable with the fact of just coming to the realization that we have these issues mm-hmm. than, and and you know what. He had a, he originally sat right, and then he talked to yep. someone in the military, and he yes. was like something that's more respect. Yeah, and so that opened my eyes, and yeah. you know, I think now we're gonna, and then whenever football comes back, we're going to see a lot of people kneeling, black, white, and oh, different. Yeah. Gonna Everyone happen. is going to be kneeling because I think people, and and you know what. Another thing too, when we talk about protests is it's a process, right? Not one person protests and everyone's just like, I'm jumping on board for this cause. It's, there's going to be division because you are talking about something that is controversial. You're yeah. shaking the cores and the psyches of many people. Yeah. And that's also- a, That's the nature of protests. Exactly. And so that, that was working. kind of like, and that was kind of my realization. And yeah. so- and so when Drew Brees made his comment, I was kind of with you. I was like, oh, the guy has been a quarterback for like 20 years, like in the life. <laughs> in New like, Orleans. Yeah, like you know better. Like even yeah. if that is, and you have every right to think and believe what you do. 100%. But holy cow, dude, like have some self-awareness. Read the room, Drew. Read the room. <laughs> so my thought, I kind of sat back and just watched everything, news media outlets, social media, what people were saying. I was like, you know what? Because I think people say stupid shit stuff all the time. Yeah. But I think there's a lot of learning opportunities to be had. Drew Brees is from Austin. His parent, his dad or his parents were like lawyers. He's been in the NFL since college. Like the guy knows nothing but affluence. Yeah. 
my one of my biggest responses to Drew, obviously, I didn't have the chance to talk to Drew, but if he wants to call me, he can. <laughs> um, but he said, you know, and I'm uh, and I completely agree with your point. And I'm going to get to the Lake Travis upbringing. Yep. But Drew Brees talks about how his grandfathers, both of his grandfathers fought in World War Two. Oh, I know where you're how, going. Yep. Continue. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, he's both of my grandfathers fought in World War Two. That's who I think of when I stand for the flag. So did black Drew, people. Black people, my you, uh, your listeners can't see, but that's my grandfather's flag right above my head. My grandfather fought in World War II just like he did, and was a black GI, a, a black um, soldier, and fought probably could have very well fought alongside Drew Brees' maternal or paternal grandparents. Yeah. The reality is another one of these racially. Uh, restrictive constructs that a lot of people do not know about is the GI Bill. And from 19, early 1940s, going into the late 1970s, so we're talking about World War II, Korea, Nam. Vietnam, and potentially maybe into Desert Storm later on, but at least into like late 70s, right? Yeah. But we're talking about 45 years minimum where the GI Bill provided free college education to white soldiers upon their return. Yeah. And you just said, you know, Drew's from Lake Travis. His parents are lawyers. I guarantee you, if they took advantage, of, if his grandparents took the advantage of the GI Bill that was afforded to him and people who look like him, it set his family up for generations to come, to have yep. free college tuition to come out with no debt at that time in American yep. history. My dad, my, my grandfather didn't get that opportunity. My grandfather came home, lived in Bronx, New York City as a, as a war veteran and had to clean country club pools that he was not even allowed to swim Come in. in. Yep. He couldn't even swim in the pool that he was cleaning and had fought in the same war that Drew Brees' grandparents fought in. Yeah. And he didn't get afforded that GI Bill. My family, I, I'm the first one, you know, like that, that, the education wasn't that, that I believe the GI bill was the single most in a uh, uh, blatant shift in equality. And it wasn't really even a shift because there had never been true economic equality. But when you talk about redlining, home ownership, all that kind of stuff, the GI bill, what it was able to do to returning soldiers and, and how it economically shifted uh, um, opportunity specifically to white men returning home. Um, I think it was one of the most uh, damning economic events of American history in terms of um, the future of economic equality. Yeah. Um, and I and I think that's a great, so uh, I was watching, I can't remember what I was watching. It was either Wilburn or Shannon Sharp talking about mm -hmm. Drew Brees and both yeah. of which went off on him, which rightfully so <laughs> one of them said, and I can't remember, but it was to the same um, thing, basically being like, well, my grandfather served in world war two. And, and one of them was like, well, no shit. Like everyone did every right. black you and white. Yeah. And, like people got drafted. And so, you know, while white soldiers came back to parades and this is the anecdote that they told while white people came back to parades, mm -hmm. Black people couldn't even get on a bus. We couldn't even get on the bus, Brittany. For Vietnam specifically, it was most apparent during Vietnam. Yeah. 
Um, I have an uncle who fought and came back and, 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 you know, was able to start his family. Black people made up 11% of the country. We're talking about black people, not even black men. Right. But if we're just talking about black people from 1964 to like 1972, black people made up 11% of the country, but made up 40% of those who served in Vietnam. So to say that, um, you know, yeah, white people fought too and black people fought too. But the reality was, especially in Vietnam, because it was the most apparent, but in World War II and World War I, going back to Crispus Attucks, who was the, the first person to ever die in any war on American soil, the first person to ever die in a war on American soil was a black dude, Crispus Attucks. And he fought in, the, he was the first casualty of the American Revolution. Black people have been fighting these wars Forever. Forever. Alongside the people who enslaved us, the people who oppressed us. And, you know, the reality is, you like you said, they didn't come home to that, to that welcome. Uh, Black World War I soldiers, they didn't, they had to throw away their, their uh, uniforms because it was looked at as disrespectful to wear your uniform near a white person because it made a black person feel, look inferior or, or superior, superior to them yeah and yeah. they black people were, if you ever get a chance go on uh, wikipedia and look up uh lynchings of world war one black veterans some egregious egregious uh points in american history where black veterans were being lynched for not getting out of a white woman's way on a sidewalk I mean, we're yeah. talking, we can talk about this all day long. And, and you know, years, and years of just. Right. And so when so we talk about. Woven. Yeah. And when we talk about. Civil rights movement, right. In the sixties mm-hmm. and some of these examples, Vietnam, yeah. they're not that long ago. No. Like we got, my dad was old. My dad, luckily did, he was, he, he was luckily not drafted, but that's my dad. He, he was 18 in 1969 and his number just didn't got caught. His brothers did. Yeah. His brothers did. My uncles went. So we're talking about not long ago. We, even people believe that slavery was so long. My wife's grandfather is still with us, sharp as a tack, 90-something years old. He knew his grandfather. He knew him. And he has stories of his grandfather. I've spoken. I talked to my wife's grandfather, very wise guy. Got all the great stories, a lot of jokes, but he knew his grandfather. His grandfather was born into slavery. Yeah. So to think that I know a guy who knew a guy. a guy. Exactly. And it, it, you have to put it in perspective. People love, you know, a lot. We are taught in this country, black people, white people, we in this country are taught to believe that, like you said earlier, we got, we have Barack Obama. Racism is dead and gone. We were elected a black guy. We actually, we elected a black dude, but we actually just kind of elected the best candidate at the time. Can we not just say that? Yes, and it, it was very symbolic of this country. Um, and it, it was a great leap in terms of the, the symbolism, but- Got a long way to go. Got a long way to go. And look what the cost was for electing a black guy. You know, look what the cost, I think what we see now politically in terms of a, and, and I know this isn't a political podcast and I don't want to Go get for it. political. Say your piece. These are my, these are my feelings and my feelings alone. Say your piece. We went from 
the first black man elected who left office with no scandals, no, no stains. No, he didn't embarrass our country. And then we go to somebody who can't put his phone away, who can't stay off the course, who can't stop uh, appointing his family members. All these things are not American. That's not democratic. It's not democracy. And I think, I think you bring a good point too, like not to get too political, but it's not American. It's not democratic. And it doesn't matter who it is, right? Like any, any, any president that is following that lead, we should all question. Yes. Um, And I'm scared again, I'm scared that between our current president and our other option. Yes. Yeah. Mate, I need to have this. Make presidential candidates Great not again. 70 years old. <laughs> I mean, we, it, it is tough. It is tough. And it does show the lack of progress, where we truly are I in agree. terms of the progress in this country. Because, man, we're, we're we, and, and, and let me just say it very clearly. I don't think Joe Biden is anything like Donald Trump, besides the fact that they're old, 70 plus old white dudes. Uh, I do believe there there's a difference between them inherently, but they have a lot of similarities too, and we can't we can't uh, we can't ignore well, the fact that they have a lot in common too. And well, so so when you said that we haven't made the progress that we thought we had, yeah. where that became glaring obvious to me mm-hmm. was when um, Biden was on with Charlemagne the God and said, "You ain't black if you don't support me." So. That means that one, all black people have to think the same. Yeah. Two, you have the authority to define who a black person is. Right. That's everything that we have been trying to get away from. Yeah. These stereotypes and like the authority to basically categorize everyone in a box. Yeah. That was a very hard. Go ahead. I was going to say, and the fact that he felt comfortable enough to say that to Charlemagne the God, who is a very famous and well known person. Mm-hmm. on air yeah shows you that like you said there are some glaring similarities that you know no matter who is in office next and again not yeah. to get too political i don't think we see these problems going away anytime soon so it is up to us in my opinion to really spark that change because you can have the figurehead the, the the president of the united states of america yeah. but we have our communities we have each other we have local politics as well yes that, that- Affects your everyday life a lot, and the voter turnout is usually forty percent, thirty percent of the presidential turnout for municipal yep. elections. Yeah, so you're a hundred percent right. And there's actionable things that we can do to um, to Im- improve equity, to improve um, those situations. You know, it, it, you can you can talk about it at the ballot box, but you can also change the perception of you and your family at your, at at home. Yeah. And I I think, yeah. And I think sometimes you do have to have those hard conversations. Now, should you have them over Thanksgiving? Maybe not, but there's a lot of other, there's a lot of other opportunities to have these conversations and don't forget, you know, people are from different generations. Yeah. You know, it's okay to reach out to your local black dude. You know, it's okay to reach out to the, cause, cause we're hurting right now. We feel targeted and I am humbled when I see a text message from an old college friend that says, hey man, I never, I never saw it until right now. Um, because, you know, 
people, your listeners can't see me. I'm a, I'm light skinned. Both of my parents are black. Both of their parents are black, but I have very fair skin. I have green eyes. We're from Louisiana. I was, there is a such thing as even light skin privilege inside of black community because sure. light skin people tend to be less threatening to white people because I'm fair skin, right? It's just kind of natural um, uh, to, to feel less threatened. And because of the way I was raised, because of the education, because I was able to take the city bus to the, to really good schools, I spoke different because I went to Boy Scouts where I experienced a lot of racism in Boy Scouts. Um, I, I had to go to LaPorte, Texas, a different city. LaPorte was a major hub for the Ku Klux Klan. I yeah. was a troop of 150 kids. I was the only black person. The first time I ever got called a nigga was when I was in Boy Scouts. And it was not the last time. And it was hell. And that's, I made my eagle at 15 because I had to get the hell up out of there because I couldn't listen to the, to, to the, to people, um, um, discriminate against me at that that's time. But one of the things that, that, uh, that we're also revisiting right now, when we talk about the, the, the underlying racism is when people tell me, which they, to this day, I'm 31 years old and people to this day still tell me, you're really articulate. Or, that's man, so, see, that's so messed up like in so many really ways well and I'm, i know that's a gift of mine you <laughs> give me a microphone i can make people laugh i can tell a good story i can um uh, i can you know i can be eloquent but what's because you're educated is, that's because i went to school and what and what people uh really mean unfortunately indirectly is like man you're really articulate for a black dude i don't yeah. i didn't expect you you it it, it, it you're moving me um, by your articulation and your eloquence, because I'm not used to black people sounding like you. And, um, and that's that kind of, um, subdued, uh, abject racism that, that we see, um, um, you know, in our society. And so those are the things that we're going to have to make conscious efforts to, like I said earlier, call your local black dude, call your local black woman whose hair you want to touch sometimes and ask ask her or him, Hey, I see you. I feel you. Um, I, 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 I I want to understand. Um, we're here to help. Most black people are here. We we want a world where we are more understood. That's why I love conversations like this. That's why I'm thankful that you would invite me on your platform, but it's fortunately, unfortunate, for George Floyd, but fortunately for this country, his death has made black people feel more listened to than ever before, probably. And because we feel more listened to, it's humbling when people say, hey, I want to reach out. I want to spend the day with you. I want to I want to just have open conversation. I want you to help me shift my thinking, answer some of these questions, um, open my eyes, tell me what books to read. I'm a big reader. So I love to Tell people what books to read. If you're listening to this, read Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. I love that book right now. I've been advocating it to everybody I know. It focuses on Sandra Bland's death. Sandra Bland was killed. Not uh, She she was, um, air quotes, if you can't see me, um, Sandra Bland um, committed suicide in Texas, but she was unlawfully searched and seizure, uh, unlawfully stopped in um, Prairie View, Texas, just 45 minutes outside of Houston. A cop sped up behind her and she pulled over without her blinker and um, she got pulled over for an improper lane change and things went south, right? But that entire book talks about actionable, um, um, uh, studied psychological 
topics that all can be um, dissected from the encounter with Sandra Bland. Um, so go read that book. I love that book. Colson Whitehead, I have it right here. Um, Nickel Boys, this is a, this, he won the Pulitzer Prize yeah, for this yeah. book this year. Love this, ba- loosely based on a true story. Um, love that book. Re- the 13th on Netflix. Uh, th- there's just so much content out there that never before have people in this country wanted to make themselves available for, wanted yeah. to make themselves available to. Um, so I just encourage everybody, all your listeners, ask people, we'll direct you to the right way. And, um, there's just so much content, so much good, positive content. Some of it is not comfortable, but third is uncomfortable. That is an uncomfortable truth, but it's something that everybody needs to learn and it'll help you shift your thinking and potentially move you to help people move you to improve your immediate, um, environment. And one thing I've been very grateful for, cause I won't lie. Like I, I don't have a lot of black friends, but the ones that I do have, I mm-hmm. considered them very good friends. Yeah. And so I've been able to sometimes ask like that question where you're like, this might come off really weird, yeah. but I mean it like the most respectfully yes. out of the goodness of my heart. Like I'm not, but again, like sometimes you just, you don't know. And, and I find myself sometimes being like, I don't understand. Yeah. And the, my friends have been very receptive, respectful, kind, because for the first time, I don't want to say like totally the first time, but like as a group, you have everyone's attention for the first time, probably. And again, you can shame people for not knowing things, or you can be part of the solution. And we want to live in a world, Black people want to live in a world where people understand us. So that's why we want to have the conversation. I had a lot of, my best friend is white. We had, he was, he's from a small town in Oklahoma. He asked me uh, when we were in college, I'll never forget. And, and it prefaced it a lot like how you were prefacing. Hey, I got a question. This might come off weird. Please tell me if I'm wrong for asking it. But he would ask me, why, why can't Black people swim? Why, why is that a stigma that black people yeah. don't know how to swim? And it's crazy because that is a thing. Like I said earlier about the doctors. doctors. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of black people that can't swim. Number one, I was like, a lot of black women don't like to get their hair wet. That's just the facts. But number two, like I said, my grandfather came back in clean pools that he wasn't allowed to swim in. So his daughters didn't get to go to swim class. Yeah. And if they don't know, if my mom didn't get to go to swim class, well, how could she teach me? Fortunately, my mom uh, used to walk to the country club where her father was cleaning the pools and she sat to the side while they were doing swim lessons. And my grandfather told my mother, they won't let you in the pool. We're talking about 1950s, early 1960s, Bronx, New York City. They're not going to let you in the pool, but listen to them, um, listen to the teacher's instructions. So my mom would sit to the side, watch the instructions. When everybody left, they would stay late at night my grandfather would clean the pool and my, my mother would get in the pool and, and try to reenact the things that she had watched from the side. That's how my mom learned how to swim. That's wild. And so it's stories like this that I am willing to tell. Black people are willing to tell you. Another one is why do black people, why are we afraid of dogs? A lot, of, I, and I just got a dog. I was actually Thank raised you. in a home with a dog. But black people on average are, if you show a black person a dog, the first questions they're going to ask is, do, do, we, do he bite? That's what we ask, do we bite? And the reality is black people didn't grow up with 
house dogs. That wasn't a thing. We didn't have domesticated dogs because the their experience. Our my father's and his brothers, their experience with dogs or with German shepherds in the streets. And it's like I don't want to get close to that dog. And so either you got attacked by a German shepherd or you had one who was outside. Yeah. So. Trevor that's Noah, in Trevor Noah's book, granted, that's not South Africa. He talks about that. He talks great, about like why um, black people traditionally have not yeah. had dogs because or domesticated dogs. They were outside. They were meant to protect. They were meant to kind of be dogs. Yeah. And so culturally, you kind of like for me, it's it was always kind of like a stereotype. And I was like, ha ha. But now you get it. Like, you're yeah. like, wow, this is so ingrained, even to this day. Like, yeah. I think, honestly, you might be the only Black person I know with a dog. Yeah. <laughs> like, honestly. Yeah, it's honestly. true. We're, it's true, because our families, my wife's, my her parents could not believe that we have a dog living in our house or what? <laughs> her parents could not believe when she told them that we got a dog, because they were not right. Neither one of her parents were raised that way. Yeah. You know, um, and it's and, and and that's why. And so my my point is that there are things uh, I, I don't like to call them stereotypes, but there are stigmas that have a, a history historical. To them. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's okay to ask about them because most of us can tell you why uh, why things are the way that they are, and it, it requires conversations like yep. these people to put their pride aside to say, "Hey, man, I, I had a question. This might sound weird." why is this like this? Yeah. Can you just tell me that? Why? I, I just want to know what is this? What is it with this? You know, and we, are, I want to help everybody because I want to live in a world where people understand me, understand yeah. my history, what my father had to go to in his family, what my mother had to go through. Um, because we're taught in schools, if you and I go to the same school, we're taught about American, we call it American history. But then in February, we can talk about a couple of black folks, but yeah. the rest of it is American history. Well, black history is American history. There's 100%. so many things 100%. that we wouldn't have hair care, brooms, stoplights, open heart surgery. Those things are invented by black people. And, uh, and we, just we, your culture in general, yeah. like how much your culture influences American culture and also yeah. how many, how oh, many other man. cultures try to duplicate american culture therefore look black culture don't get me started on that i truly believe in my heart of hearts that black culture specifically is the united states of america's number one export it is what we it is our biggest export to the world is black culture it ain't oil it ain't rice it's black culture and there is no part of american history american commerce uh, american culture that is not um, uniquely uh, founded or uniquely um, um, uh, touched by black hands. I mean, art. Uh, we, if if you would ask somebody who is the most famous American artist, and most people will say, I'm not going to put you on the spot, but most people will say, I don't know, Andy Warhol. Right? Andy Warhol is a is a is an outrageously famous artist but yeah. people don't know a lot of people don't know the number the the highest uh, uh grossing painting the the most the most uh valuable painting in american history was done by jean-michel basquiat who grew up in harlem new york 
an American black man. And he and Andy Warhol were friends. Yep. And Andy Warhol hated how uh, how valuable his artwork was. Well, he just a couple years ago, Basquiat sold something for 40 something million dollars. Yeah, I remember this. Yep. Yeah. And that's a that's a black. So art, music, people think about rock and roll or rock and roll. White people invented rock and roll. Well, who who's the first rock and roll artist that you can think of that really changed? And they say, well, Elvis no, probably. Yeah. Elvis Elvis was was the king of, of rock and roll. That's what they call him. Elvis's number one hit when he came out was You Ain't Nothing But a Hound Dog. Elvis didn't, Elvis was, that, that song was four years old by the time Elvis sang it. It was uh, Sister Rosetta Sharp. I think that was her name. No, it was, it was uh, Mama Thornton. Her name was Mama Thornton. Let me see. Hound Dog. Yeah, I mean, when we talk, while you look that up, while we talk yeah. about music specifically, there's no, there's no denying the yeah. impact that Black culture has had. And Big Mama Thornton. There we go. Big Mama <laughs> Thornton. She did that four years before Elvis ever saw that. So she was the first one to really grab that guitar and play the blues. You had, you had, uh, just Black people have our hands, our ancestors have our hands. Um, in the depths everything. Everything. of everything, everything about what's uniquely American. Yes. The things that we believe that are uniquely American. Agreed. And so, yeah, I mean, it's incredible. And, and I, you know, it might be 2020 and I don't want to say better late than never. Cause I think that oversimplifies it, yeah. but you know, this is, this is our moment collectively as a country to get it right, do it right change our perspectives and move forward um, because there's a lot of deep rooted issues that we kind of swept under the rug and, and we just thought we're okay. And clearly they are not. So, yes. so one thing, my last question for you sure. in Houston, what, where are your favorite black owned restaurants, businesses that you go to? And Man. you know, if, if anyone who is listening is not from Houston, First of all, the food scene is bananas. Second of all, just the stores and the local community um, support for things is incredible. So when you go out and you're doing something, where do you go? Um, great question. Uh, before I answer that, I want to say that there's been studies that are done um, about how quickly the dollar leaves different ethnic communities. Um, the, you can, you can, it's easily Googleable. Um, in, for instance, like in, in, uh, Asian communities, the, unfortunately Houston, although it's not a segregated place, but it's very pocketed. Yep. Um, the Chinese live in one place, the Indians live in another place. The black people tend to live. I live in a historically black neighborhood. I can get all into the history of, <laughs> of when black people moved to acres homes, but that's where I live now. Um, but, uh, the dollar leave, the dollar takes like three months to leave um, the Asian community. It takes like one month to leave um, the Indian community in Houston. It takes like uh, one month to leave uh, the, the, the Latin community because they can, they can invest and that dollar can, can go to, uh, to stay in their community. It takes about 15 minutes for the dollar to leave the black community. And the reason that that is, is, um, yeah, you can go to a black owned restaurant, but where do they get their food from? And they, yeah. they're they not buying it from black people. You can go to a black owned clothing store. Where do they get their fabric from? 
um, and and unfortunately in other communities, they can buy from their, each other. Their, they can buy from each other, and so that dollar stays in that community. A lot of studies have been done on this. So um, the reason why I love uh, that we are now that you asked me this question, and I love that people are now actively doing what's necessary to um, invest in their community and in, in, in their community is specifically at this time investing in black communities because the only way that we can ever promote equity across the board is to um, is to uh, in, invest with intention in, intentionally invest in people not yeah. just oh let's go here because no sometimes you have to intentionally Intention. invest so um, if you're in Houston restaurant indigo a good friend of mine Johnny Rhodes uh, who was a James Beard nominated chef this year. It's a beautiful restaurant. I love it. It's in Cashmere Gardens. It's in a very rough neighborhood. It's only got 13 seats. And let me tell you, white people have been going to this place in droves. They are uncomfortable when they park their cars, but it's supposed to be like that. It, he he designed it this Intentional. way. Intentionally designed it this way to break down these barriers and have open conversations. So it's more about uh, the food is phenomenal. Um, but it's, a it's, it's more about the experience. So Johnny Rhodes, um, is a shining star in Houston right now, uh, at restaurant Indigo. He actually also owns a, a, uh, uh, grocery store called Broham Grocery. And oh, yeah. he lives, um, he lives in, or, or this community where the store is, Cashmere Gardens is what's called a food desert. So the people in this community don't have immediate access to fresh vegetables. Um, black people unfortunately have high blood pressure, usually because it's easier and cheaper for them to eat something that gives them high cholesterol and blood pressure than it is to go to a local restaurant or local uh, grocery store to get healthy foods. So there's no, no grocery stores anywhere near this neighborhood. So he decided, shit, I'm just going to build it myself. Um, uh, Lucille's uh, is very good. Uh, Chef Chris, um, Joe Biden actually went there with George Floyd's family after the, um, after the funeral um, great restaurant culture. Um, chef Dom is at culture. Don, I think her name is Don. Chef Don is at culture. It's also, that's owned by the owners of the breakfast club. Oh yeah, a yeah. Very, very talented chef. Um, Esther's Cajun cafe is in acres homes. I went to, uh, middle school, high school and college with, uh, the owner of Esther's, um, cafe. Uh, it's on Yale street. Um, Miko's hot chicken is a very booming Tennessee hot chicken style uh, yep. sandwich joint um, on Durham uh, or Shepherd, actually on Shepherd in Houston. Um, I could go on and on. Yeah. There's so many black, I, I hate that I can't just rattle them off because um, there's, there's so many of them. But uh, the, because of everything going on in this country, because of the desire for people to intentionally invest economically um, more than ever before, Things like black restaurants are Googleable. You can just look it up and figure it out. I, I even saw Uber Eats. Yeah. Um, we yep. had a Uber Eats and and NL. You can now um, they'll tell you here are the local black on. I love and I won't lie, I that was one of the first things I did. I was like black restaurants in Denver. And it was I thought it was gonna be actually like really hard yeah. to find. No, mm-hmm. here it was literally like Denver, it's uh our website in Denver is called like Denver 365. And okay. it was like, here's 200 restaurants, stores, like makeup and like fashion. Yeah. And, 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 and actually it brought awareness to me of like historic, 
historical black neighborhoods in Denver that I was not aware yeah. of because yeah. there's an area in Denver called Five Points. And I'm not from here, so I don't know these things. But all of a sudden, I was like looking at the list mm-hmm. and it was just like Five Points, Five Points, Five right. Points. And then, of course, like you connect the dots. You're like, okay. Like, right. And so I learned something new. And so it was, it was kind of like a process where it was like, I was trying to be intentional. I'm trying to not only support my community, but also to support the people right now that we are standing with. Yeah. And then I got a little history lesson out of it. It used to be like yeah. where all the wealthy doctors and lawyers lived once upon a time. Yeah. And, and I think like to, was it the restaurant Indigo that you said is in a rough neighborhood, but it's a nice yes. restaurant? Yes. You know, breaking down those barriers mm-hmm. is super important because in reality, they're not really barriers. It's like no. roads, right? It's just roads. It's just a different street. Or, or, or railroad lines, right? In reality, yeah. it's not a wall or anything. Like all you have to do is drive your car over it. Yes. And so I think when you break down the, the proverbial walls, yeah. and, you know, then you just kind of realize, yeah, we're different, but we're one community. And, yes. um, and so, so I appreciate your restaurant list one, because I like food, but two, you know, these are, these are intentional businesses, right. That we can all support that, you know, and they're kind of scattered throughout Houston too. So no matter like where you kind of live, um, you probably have kind of, you know, you're like one arm length yeah. away. From, yeah, it's, from it's, it. they're all over the place. They're all yeah. over the place. And it's probably not too dissimilar in Denver. You know, there, if you, if there, if you want to find it, they're there. You can be intentional about it. I have a lot of family in Denver. My, my dad grew up in Colorado Springs. I didn't know that. But, um, um, and my dad went to CU Boulder, played football at CU Boulder. And, uh, so I have a lot of family that are in Denver and have lived there years and years. My grandmother, my father's mom was actually born in Mississippi. My father's mom is actually half white. Quick story. Um, her mother had a relationship with a white sheriff. I don't know the nature of the relationship with a white sheriff in Mississippi and some had push got to shove and they were like, we can't give birth to this half black, half white baby in 1921 West Point, Mississippi. So they had a, a, some family member that was in uh, Colorado Springs. And that's how my family um, moved to Colorado Springs. I have a, a ton of family in Denver. I got a lot of roots in Colorado and I love, um, um, I hope that uh, your listeners um, have that same pride in Colorado that I do and have the same uh, intentionality in terms of trying to uh, create equity, create parity, economic parity. Um, and it's it, like we said over and over again, it takes that intentionality yeah. um, to say, you know what, honey, today we're going on date night, but we're going to go on a date night in a black restaurant because yeah. that's something actionable that you can do to help. Um, create just a small ripple of economic um, or sowing a small seed of economic investment yeah. into, into a black restaurant or black yeah. community. I mean, every, everything, you know, I really have been appreciative of everything you've said. You've been very candid. You've been very honest. You've been very raw during a very raw and emotional time. Um, and I appreciate you having this conversation. Um, you know, like I said, it's not the most comfortable thing for me, um, but that's okay. That's, I, I didn't have you on here to be comfortable uh, yeah. quite frankly. And, you know, I, I appreciate all the work that you do. And and when I kind of first approached you about this, one thing I've always admired about you is you've been, you've earned and you've also been given opportunities. And I, I believe that you have fully mm-hmm. capitalized on everything. Mm-hmm. And, and that isn't by chance, right? Like you don't just stumble into that. I think no. you work very hard. And, 
you've broken down barriers. You've also, you know, when someone told you, no, you were just like, cool, I'm going to go do it anyway, kind of thing. And, and then also now you're paying it forward. And I think that's one thing that we, when you're successful, however you want to define success, when you're successful, I think there is a responsibility to pass it on or help someone. It's not, no one becomes successful by themselves. And there might've been one person, there might've been a collective group of people, whatever it may be. But as we look to better our communities and ourselves, we really need to look to help help, help people, however yeah. that is in your capacity. And you know, you're a big, um, you've been a big multiple times. I'm involved. I'm waiting to get matched right now, but obviously COVID has put a dent into everything. Yeah. Um, but there's many different ways to help. And and I think when you have the ability to, to help, it, it is a privilege in a way. Mm-hmm. You're at the point in your life where you are at a, uh, you have accomplished what you feel you need, or you have accomplished what you need to. And now you have the time and the resources to give back. And so yes. I think it's one of the greatest gifts that you can get both as someone who helps, but also someone who is receiving that help. And um, so that's, that's, that's one of the main reasons too, I wanted to have you on is because, you know, you're someone who is fighting this fight very diligently, but you're also doing things to better yourself, people like me in the community. And so Again, I really appreciate you coming on. I know you don't have to do this. You've probably had these conversations a zillion times, um, but I really, I truly appreciate it. And, um, you know, I consider myself very lucky to know you um, because I, I just think you're a wonderful person. I feel the same, Brittany. I'm, I'm honored that you would think of me and have me on. Um, you know, I'm big fans of the Metcalfs, um, Jim and Barbara, my people, uh, just good people. You are, you are very fortunate to be raised in a home I agree like that um, because, um, you know, outside of the opportunities and uh, things that, you know, advantages, whatever that you may be afforded, not everybody had the blessing to be able to go home to some really understanding, loving people. And, um, and I think that if this world was filled with a bunch of Metcalfs, uh, it'd probably be a, it'd probably be a lot better world. So I appreciate you um, would, would think of me and yeah, I, you know, I, and um, you know, anything I can do to help you out, let me know. Absolutely. Well, you know, I'll be posting this in the next couple of weeks. So, you know, be on the lookout, share it wherever you will. And, you know, hopefully, you know, this dialogue either a inspires people to have kind of these tough conversations or B, you know, they got something out of it. There was a ton of stuff I learned from you today um, as well. And so, you know, I can't believe we talked for two hours, honestly. Um, but you know, I, honestly, it was, it was <laughs> one of the greatest, I think this was one of the better in uh, conversations I've had throughout this time. <laughs> and I'm glad we were able to document it. I appreciate it. I'm glad we got to do it. Awesome. We'll have a great rest of your weekend and I'm sure we'll catch up soon. See ya.